morning, church family. My name is Anthony. I'm one of the um, members of this church. Our scripture reading today is going to be taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, um, and we are reading the whole 22 verses. And it can be seen on pages 671 and 672. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, from 1 to 22. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from the atoll? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in, hum in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for God than people to be happy to do good while they live, that each may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all the at all. This is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. Some fate awaits them both, same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage of animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot, for who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm not sure where Chris's emphasis was earlier. Was it Jonathan's preaching later, or was it Jonathan's preaching later? <laughs> Big difference. <laughs> Let me pray as we uh, keep uh, Ecclesiastes 3 
open in front of us. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. Please sanctify us by the truth. Make us more like the Lord Jesus as we listen and come under the authority of your word. Please may we, even this morning, be a little bit transformed by the renewing of our minds. For the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. I'm sure many of us will recognize uh, those as being the best opening line, one of the best opening lines in English literature from the novel by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. But how can it possibly be both the best of times and the worst of times? That doesn't make sense, does it? Well, welcome to Ecclesiastes 3, which opens with this famous poem about times and seasons, and it swings rather like a pendulum, line by line, between the best of times and the worst of times. So after that introductory line, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, we get then get these 14 pairs of contrasts. They cover a whole range of life's experiences and our very deepest emotions, beginning with the most fundamental best and worst of times, a time to be born and a time to die, and ending with one that our Ukrainian friends are tragically all too familiar with, a time for war and a time, who knows when, for peace. Back in chapter 2, as we saw last week, the teacher was manically chasing after meaning in all kinds of places, as was illustrated so wonderfully by our brother Richard, complete with costumes and props. Uh, I cannot possibly match that, and I'm not going to risk embarrassing myself by even attempting to. But the teacher tried wine and folly. He pursued building projects and extreme gardening and irrigation. He accumulated slaves, established his own house choir had his own harem. He denied himself nothing that his eyes desired. He refused his heart no pleasure. And the result? Chapter 2, end of verse 11. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so here in chapter 3, we now find him in a somewhat more reflective kind of mood. He contemplates the ordered rhythms of times and seasons to see if this maybe can help him make sense of life under the sun. Uh, one of the challenges I've found in preaching, uh, preparing to preach this book for the very first time is trying to grasp the overall theme of Ecclesiastes. And it's really not easy with wisdom literature. But it's important, I think, to have at least some sense of the big picture because that can help us uh, as we look at the detail, just to orientate ourselves, keep us on track. Uh, and this is where I've settled, for now at least, on the overall message of Ecclesiastes. The way to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life is to fear God, enjoy his good gifts, and focus on eternity. Let me say that again. The way to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life is to fear God, enjoy his good gifts, and focus on eternity. 
And it so happens that the essence of what I'm proposing as an overall book theme is also captured pretty well, I think, here in Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, To help us navigate the passage, I want to draw out three truths about the God who creates, orders, and controls the times and seasons. So first, briefly, from verses 1 to 8, God has made us time-bound creatures. God has made us time-bound creatures. Uh, We see that back in the very beginning, don't we? Back in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, there's that refrain that runs through the chapter. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And so it goes on. God has built a natural, discernible rhythm into creation that is plain for all to see. And this poem at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3 captures that very same sense of rhythm. If you listen carefully, you can almost hear the quiet tick-tock of a grandfather clock in the background as it's read. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. Tick. Like it or not, you and I are bound by time. We might not always recognize the times. Quite often, we may not like the times. I'm not all that keen on the time when I have to stop preaching. I'd quite like sometimes to go on and on. A bit like Paul, you know, in Acts 20. Not that I want anyone to fall out of the window, by the way, be careful, and die like Eutychus. A few weeks ago, I did go on and on. And you very kindly indulged me. But I imagine that patience would soon wear thin if I consistently ignore the allotted preaching time. So we may not like the times. We certainly do not control the times. But we are unavoidably hemmed in by times and seasons. They do not wait for us. They do not check if we feel ready for them. We cannot press pause on time like many of us, of course, are able to do now with live TV or live stream services even. Many of you at home may have already pressed pause thinking this is a good time to make a cup of tea. I just thought I'd give you the experience in the auditorium. (laughs) But you see, this can all create an illusion that we're able to control time, which of course we're not. Often we misread the times, don't we? So end of verse 5, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I remember as a young assistant minister and youth worker in London turning up at an interchurch prayer meeting and I was greeted by this young woman on the door who gave me the most enormous bear hug. Now, don't get me wrong, I like a hug, but I'd never met the woman before and it was just inappropriately long and tight. I mean, I actually had to wriggle free. As the teens might post, hashtag orcs. Well, I don't know if teens post that or not, actually. But it was certainly a time to refrain from embracing, I think. Sometimes it's not so much that we misread the times, but that we struggle to discern the times. So verse 6, there's a time to search and a time to give up. But when do you stop searching for your purse or wallet and decide to contact the bank to cancel those cards? Do it too early and you might be inviting a whole load more stress if you find it an hour later. 
do it too late, well, the bank may say, no, no, that's, that's your liability. You told us too late. And try telling the parents of a missing child that there's a time to give up searching for them. Really? Often the times are just so inconvenient, aren't they? They interrupt our plans. Last weekend I was due to drive to Salisbury to meet with some friends of mine. Uh, we were going to celebrate my appointment as minister and team leader here. But as it turned out, it wasn't a time for celebration, but instead, verse 7, a time to tear and a time to mend, all within the space of 24 hours, because my car got a puncture on the A33 Millbrook flyover, three miles from home. Very inconvenient. Plans upended, and for that weekend, certainly terminated. God has made us time-bound creatures, but we don't control the times. And, and love it or hate it, that is the simple reality as we live out life under the sun. But it gets more complicated and at times even more frustrating. Because secondly, verses 9 to 15, God has said eternity in our hearts. God has said eternity in our hearts. Look with me please at verse 10. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And we know that reality, don't we? A beautiful sunset, a beautiful beach, a beautiful starry sky on a clear night, a beautiful piece of exotic fruit, a beautiful person that we might think we might like to go out with or to marry, or a beautiful animal that we'd love to have as a pet. My dream pet is a husky dog. Mind you, the last time I said that in my last church, one of the leaders threatened to buy me one as a surprise. Well, I'm sure it wasn't meant as a threat, but you know what I mean. I know you love me, but please don't. Oh yes, God has made everything beautiful in its time. So why then is this a burden to the human race? Well, because second half of verse 11, he has also said eternity in the human heart. So the beautiful sunset comes to an end. And in this country, at least, who knows when we'll see another. Beautiful beach gets eroded away or covered in rubbish or spoiled by an oil spillage. Beautiful piece of exotic fruit will go moldy if left uneaten. Beautiful animal may get sick or even stolen if it's a valuable breed. A beautiful person eventually grows old and wrinkled, which of course can still be beautiful, but it's not the beauty of vibrant youth, is it? The greatest burden of all, though, for time-bound creatures with eternity in our hearts is rooted back in verse 2 of the poem. We rejoice, of course, in every new birth with flowers and gifts and photos and baby showers. But the tragic reality is that for every single living being, there is also a time to die. And we accept that, of course, because we have to. But somehow it still feels wrong to us, doesn't it? So when I was 17 years old, my dad died suddenly and unexpectedly. I was a God-fearer of kind, certainly not a Christian, but I remember praying to God, why, why God, why did you let that happen? Why leave my mum a widow? Why leave me and my sister without a dad? Some of you have watched loved ones die. Some cases you've cared for them to their final breath. Some have lost children in their prime, even in the womb through miscarriage. And it all simply feels wrong, doesn't it? We sometimes talk about life being cut short. 
or about someone being taken too early before their time. But where do such thoughts come from? If you and I were only bound by time, well, we wouldn't think that way, would we? We'd be more fatalistic about death as some around us are. Oh, it was his time. Her number was up. He's had a good innings. But no, you see, God has said eternity in the human heart. So those well-meaning words are actually empty. They don't help us. Put it another way. God has put in our innermost being a burning desire to live forever. I think Chris quoted in the first week of this series that famous Queen song, Who Wants to Live Forever? Well, the only reason that forever is even a concept in our finite minds is because God has said eternity in the human heart. And of course, when you said eternity in the heart of a time-bound creature, it is bound to create a conflict, isn't it? And the teacher recognizes that when he writes, end of verse 11, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We cannot work it out. God's ways are unfathomable. And yet, and yet, did you notice the teacher makes two confident I know statements in verses 12 and 14. And here, I don't believe he's using irony. I'm convinced that he intends these two I know statements to be genuine wise application of this fathomless reality of us being time-bound creatures with eternity in our hearts. So first, verses 12 and 13, the first I know is be satisfied with his gifts. Verse 12 I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Now, of course, not all of us here are happy in our work or our current life situation. I know that's certainly true for many of you here who are refugees and asylum seekers. But if God graciously grants any of us even brief moments of happiness or opportunities to do good in this life, if God enables you to enjoy even some delicious food and drink, if he gives you a job or a vocation, paid or voluntary, temporary or permanent, a role in the church perhaps, that brings you even a measure of satisfaction, thank him for it. This is the gift of God. Many people don't experience that. Or if you prefer it in New Testament terms, please remind yourself often that we are each created by and belong to 1 Timothy 6 verse 17, the God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now in its context, that verse actually comes with a command to believers in Jesus and especially those who are rich in this present world, which is most of us here compared to many in the world. It comes with a command not to be arrogant, nor to put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Paul goes on to write that we're to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So can I encourage us all this morning, if God is richly providing you with any good thing for your enjoyment, tasty food and drink, satisfaction in your work, a good salary, a lovely home, whatever it may be, let's remember that the Lord wants us to be generous, and willing to share those blessings around, opening our homes maybe. A couple of months ago I preached on the grace of generous giving from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and every day since then 
God has kindly reminded me, I say kindly reminded me, sometimes he's woken me up at night to remind me, of a commitment that I made while preaching, that I would pray every day and ask God to move each of us up the generosity scale. I see some evidence that that is happening. I really want and pray that Above Bar Church will become increasingly a church that is marked out by rich generosity and cheerful giving. So there's the first thing the teacher knows, that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, to eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. But the second thing he knows is really quite fascinating because he knows why the eternal God acts in eternal ways even though his creatures are time-bound. I mean, is it some cruel joke to set eternity in the hearts of creatures that are restricted and limited by time? Absolutely not. He does it so that we will fear him. So that we will fear him. Look with me, please, at verse 14. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. Then listen to this. God does it so that people will fear him. This idea of fearing God is a recurring one in the book of Ecclesiastes. Indeed, when we finally reach chapter 12, the teacher will say this by way of his major application. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Now that word fear has uh, multiple layers of meaning in the Hebrew language. So it can mean literal fear, as in be afraid of, be terrified of, be in dread of. But it can also mean to revere, to stand in awe of, to be astonished by, to honor and respect. And let me say that for the believer in Jesus, there is no question that the second set of meanings is in mind. Because the Bible tells us there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. So the Christian is not to fear or be terrified of God's punishment. Why? Well, because the punishment that brought us peace has been laid on Jesus permanently. And those of you here who have had a very strict Roman Catholic upbringing, or perhaps a very strict Islamic upbringing, you may need to hear that this morning. You may need to perhaps pray or ask others to pray with you or for you, asking that the perfect love of your merciful Father in heaven will drive out all the remnants of the wrong kind of fear. The fear that makes you worry that every time you make a mistake, every time you mess up, put a foot wrong, God is eagerly waiting there in heaven severely to punish you. Brothers and sisters, he is not. He is rich in mercy. I can put it this way with reverence. When it comes to mercy, God is minted. He is absolutely loaded. He is a multiple mercy millionaire. I don't know how many other ways I can say it. He is rich in mercy. But you know, there are others of us here who, I wonder if we've perhaps become a bit too casual with God. We treat him like he's our mate or our best buddy. And we need to recapture or perhaps experience for the very first time a sense of awe and reverence for him. 
to ask him to nurture in our hearts a deep respect for him, the kind of fear that takes him and his words so seriously that, well, I just don't want to do anything that might offend him or might interrupt my fellowship with him, not even for a moment. And you know, that kind of fear is actually very close, biblically, to love for God. The fear of God and the love of God often go together. Remember, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. The writer of Hebrews urges Christians that we are to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God, the Christian God, Jesus, is a consuming fire. And you know, that kind of fear has countless benefits in the Christian life. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's a fountain of life. It causes us to shun evil. Well, how about this? Psalm 25, verse 12, Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. Divine guidance. What a promise. Same Psalm, verse 14, The Lord confides in those who fear him. Wow. Divine intimacy. Interestingly, that is what best friends do, isn't it? Confide in one another. Do you remember how it was said of Moses, Exodus 33, verse 11, that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. God has made us time-bound creatures. God has set eternity in our hearts. He wants us to be satisfied with his gifts and learn to fear him, not least because finally and briefly, verses 16 to 22, God will judge us at an appointed time. You may notice there's an abrupt gear change in verse 16. Just as we start to think there's a sense of hope and optimism, we're jolted back to the harsh reality of life under the sun. Verse 16, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. We British people sometimes have this unhealthy tendency, I think, to look down on other countries and cultures with their corrupt practices. Places where government officials take bribes or where judges, law enforcement can be bought for a price. But I think the illusion that we are any better in this country has been slowly shattered over these last years, don't you? Whether by the various political scandals, streams of lies uncovered, cash for questions, dodgy tax arrangements, institutional racism, sexual predators evading detection for years within police forces, and so on and so on, countless examples. Sure, sometimes it may be better hidden in the UK, but so often we look to people or authorities or institutions or companies, dare I say even churches or charities, where we might expect or at least hope to find good judgment, justice, fairness, concern for the poor, marginalized and alienated. But sadly, all too often what we actually find is wickedness, injustice, such is the reality of life under the sun in a fallen, broken world. So I hope you thank God that a day is coming when, verse 17, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. And I think we need to gently challenge those of our friends, family, colleagues, neighbors who say, well, I don't like to think of a God who judges people. Really? Let's push them a bit. Help them to see the absolute horror and hopelessness of a world where there is no final accounting, where there is no judge who will finally put right all the wrongs and injustices of our often cruel and unfair world. 
And, you know, I think we also need to help people see the logical conclusion of thinking that human beings are just like all the other animals. I mean, that's life under the sun, isn't it? If we take the concept of a loving creator out of the equation, one who wants a relationship with human beings who, unlike the other animals he's made in his image, what are we left with? Verse 19. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over the animals. Everything is meaningless. Verse 21, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Who knows? Well, certainly not this teacher. He couldn't be sure. But you and I can be because of another teacher, the eternal Son of God. The one who at precisely the right time, predetermined by his heavenly Father, came down from heaven and entered into our time-bound world. And this teacher doesn't manically try to discover the meaning of life and look for satisfaction on the basis of trial and error, or even on reflection of the times and seasons, though he has some brilliant illustrations from the times and seasons. No, he teaches as one who has authority, dares to claim, I am the bread of life the very essence of life itself. He promises that those who eat the bread and drink the drink that he gives will never be hungry or thirsty again. And he finds personal satisfaction in doing the will of his Father in heaven, even to the point of willingly submitting himself to a humiliating death on a cross. The perfect Son of God subjecting himself to the worst act of wickedness and injustice that the world has ever seen. But death could not hold him. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward? Brothers and sisters, we do. Because Jesus, the perfect human being, was raised from the dead in the power of an indestructible life. And because he has conquered death. Because he has paid the penalty. For every time the Creator looks at your life and mine, hoping to find good judgment and justice, and finds only wickedness. It means that if I put my trust in this Jesus, on that last day, my spirit too, and indeed my body, will rise upward and be transformed in the twinkling of an eye to become like Jesus. In fact, for those believing in Jesus this morning, spiritually speaking, I am already seated with him in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 2 verse 6. That's how certain it is that the human spirit does rise upward and so I think the application of Ecclesiastes 3 for us is this trust Jesus trust him as your saviour and your lord enjoy his good gifts but seek ultimate satisfaction in him not his gifts but in him and in doing his will fear him and he will bring you through death and judgment and keep you safe for eternity where with him indeed in him you will enjoy the very best of times imaginable. No more worst of times, no more bad or sad times at all. Indeed, you'll enjoy uninterrupted times of inexpressible joy that are way beyond anything that any of us could either ask or imagine. What Psalm 16 calls eternal pleasures at God's right hand.